0: Hi, I'm Olivier from Chicharibre and you're listening to WCBN FM and Arbor.
1: Afternoon, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Yona Harvey is here with me in the studio. Yona, welcome to Living Writers. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's great to see you. I'll, I'll say that we're taping the show. It's April the 27th, 2014. And Yona, you were in town to read at Literati. And some folks, I'm sure, who are listening today probably got a chance to hear you at the bookshop. And you were reading with Susan Hutton. Yes, my dear friend, Susan. <laughs> and friend of the show. <laughs> She's a great poet. And how how was the, the Literati? Because that's one of our newer books, bookstores. I think Literati's a year old now. You wouldn't
2: know that going in. You'd think it had been there for years and years. It was packed and people were so attentive and warm. What a great book spot.
1: It is. It is. I think it's one of those places that's meant to be. So, <laughs>
2: you know, it <and> so that's <laughs> why when it got there, it was the space was like, oh, right. <laughs> yes. It was dangerous actually the longer I stayed there the really? more books I bought. I went Back to the register two or three times. It was crazy. And then did you notice the totes and the T-shirts? I did. I'm always like, those are so great. I resisted. (laughs) You did?
1: (laughs) Well, you, because you're visiting. You're here from Pittsburgh. That's right. Right, Yona? That's right. You know, before I go any further, I'll Mm -hmm. I'll read your short bio from the back of your book, Hemming the Water by Yona Harvey. This is your debut poetry collection out with four-way books. Last spring, so spring 2013, and just recently, I think this March, you were uh, awarded the, the Kingsley Tufts Discovery Kate, Award. Kate
2: Tufts. Kate. Mm-hmm. Kate. The Kingsley Alpha Michael Afa Weaver won the Kingsley. So that's for a poet who's further along in his or her oh. career. So, and then the Kate. So I've, I've actually had you
1: winning both awards at once. People do that this all the is, time, though. This is, this <laughs> is, <this laughs> is, I'm just, I'm sorry. Kingsley, no, you're no. now being scratched out. Kate, Kate, Kate Tufts Discovery Award. I think, I mean, no offense, Kingsley, but I feel like the Discovery Award one is the more, uh. I feel like it just sounds great. <laughs> it feels great to be discovered sure (laughs) or did you say i've been here you know i am here (laughs) but it is discovery right because it's well we'll hear some poems we'll give everyone a chance to hear some poems okay and but first your short bio born in southern ohio yona harvey is a literary artist residing in pittsburgh pennsylvania She's received a Barbara Deming Award, an individual artist grant from the Pittsburgh Foundation, a Pittsburgh Flight School Fellowship, and a Virginia Center for the Creative Arts Fellowship. Hemming the Water is her first book. Oh, and you could go and check out yonaharvey.com. And see the beautiful cover of the book is the first thing you'll see when you land on your site. And this is something you made, Yona. The, on the cover, did you? Is this one of your collages? No. no? Actually, oh, well, okay. first the Kingsley. My- <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's fine. It's a really great artist. Maya Freelon Asante is the one who uh, made the cover. Uh, well, the artwork that's on the cover. It's actually a really huge tissue paper collage. So she started working this way when she found a bunch of wet colored tissue paper in her grandmother's basement, and r- it was sort of running together yeah. as it does with the tissue, the colors. Mm-hmm. And so she started this kind of work. Did after you, that,
1: did you pick this then for the cover? I of did. Your book, the Having press the water? was
2: very generous; they allowed me to send in some images, and it just so happened that we were all on the same page about. The number one choice which was Maya's work very that's, lucky
1: yeah well, that's wonderful it is beautiful it's funny because um I feel because you're a
2: visual artist too I used to be I don't, I don't know if it's okay to say that now I don't make very much anymore so and do you have to be doing to sort of
1: feel like that's a A label or so? I feel like that, yeah. Or a name?
2: Yeah. There's more people, I think, out there who are practicing. But it's okay. I think I'll get back to it. Well, on your website, um, on your
1: your artist statement site, there's Mm -hmm. an image that I feel like you took, Mm -hmm. which is your shadow. And then there's pieces of... um, I'm not sure. It looks like maybe paper or so Mm -hmm. that you've cut into. So when I saw that, I thought, oh, Yona
2: is also still always working in all these mediums. I'm trying. I'm always just trying to stay connected to that world the visual art world so at that time when I was taking those photos I was in the process of collaborating Mm -hmm. with a visual artist named uh, Vanessa German and so those were some of the pieces that ended up in another piece that we was that it's out of my hands right okay that's right great title That's Vanessa that comes from Vanessa. So
1: yeah, so you're working in collaboration
2: tr- as always part of trying, your work. Yes, why why is that something you value? Um, well, I've always really been fascinated with the fine art world and then when I was an undergraduate in DC at Howard University, I worked as a museum cashier at at the Air and Space Museum and also at the Phillips Collection, and that was a way that I just was exposed to so much art, you know. And it starts there, I think. I don't know. And is that why you won the flight award? What was that? When oh. I was reading off oh. the flight school fellowship. What is this? Is it is it flying Pittsburgh? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Pittsburgh Flight School, it's a new organization, and um, they work to sort of get artists of all kinds, so writers, visual artists, whoever, musicians, to focus more on the art-making side of their careers, promoting that part of their lives and really putting that at the forefront, you know, as opposed to our day jobs and things like that. How do you really... Put your art-making process at the top and then support it through, I don't know, activities or shows or art fairs, so readings. So how did you learn? To, so do you feel like by
1: participating in, or having this fellowship, did, did you figure that out,
2: Yona? Because that would be <laughs> really valuable. I started for the first time to think about more seriously, more purposefully, um, and with a great deal more focus and maybe even a little bit more selfishness. So really, uh, one of the sponsors for it was also the Creative Capital Foundation, and Creative Capital also promotes the lives and work of artists. So they just really start to ask you very pointed questions about, you know, what are your goals as an artist? What's your vision for yourself? And Mm -hmm. when a a group or person asks you that question every week and you have to articulate it verbally to other artists in the room and you have to write it down for yourself, you really start to, at least I did, interrogate your own life and habits and think about, okay, am I really putting my poetry first and my process? And if not, why is that? What am I afraid of? And So It comes out of that whole process. And it's it's a a very good organization. Yes, it sounds it. And how long was the fellowship for? Because it was
1: multiple weeks, at least by the sounds of it.
2: I think it was, I want to say 10 to 12 weeks, something like that. And it's super intensive. (laughs) The same people, those 10 to 12 weeks? Same people. And then you get a little buddy group. Like in, one of my buddies was Ed Piscor, a really fantastic comic artist. He just wrote this really um, great comic on the history of hip hop, the hip hop family tree, which is also it was also serialized on Boing Boing. Um, so, yeah, just really intelligent, talented artists holding themselves accountable every week, you know,
1: and it sounds like with that reflection and being accountable each week to say it out loud. Yes, that was key. That's
2: so interesting. Yes, it's very different from sort of promising yourself something internally. And then of course, breaking that promise because no one else heard you versus showing up every week, being in a group and saying, this is what I want to do. These are the tangible steps that I'm going to do to finish. So And is it people, um, are the fellowships
1: given to people who are living in Pittsburgh? Yes. Pittsburgh sounds like a place that values artists. Very much. And art. Very much. Art makers.
2: So, yeah, there's some really great foundations, uh, the Sprout Fund and the Heinz Foundation that seem very, very committed to getting emerging artists off the ground. So... I'm lucky (laughs) it's the right time to be there I guess (laughs) and and what brought you to Pittsburgh what was the Um, my husband who's also a poet was hired at Carnegie Mellon and so that's why we ended up in Pittsburgh and it's a good place yeah to be it sounds oh yeah well the
1: music that you chose the songs today Yona for the the program (laughs) and I know now it's a little bit of a little bit ago that we heard. But also, um, you have a couple of quotes that start your the, the book. Um, one is by Ruth Stone, and one is by Mary Lou Williams. Mm-hmm. I didn't have no religion, but I didn't want my parents to look bad, mm-hmm. which cracks me up every... i I think it's great every time i read it and and it's serious too but mary lou williams she was the person that was the um the the musician the composer that we heard at the top to start the program can you tell us a little bit about your connection to her or your um your
2: interest sure uh well what started it was many, many years ago, I got into a little one-week workshop at the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center. Um, and it was with Yusuf Komanyaka. He's great. He's Friend fantastic. <laughs> And so one night, you know, our workshop went out to get ice cream or something. I don't know what we were doing. And he doesn't really say all that much, you know. So he just turned to me out of the blue and said, you should write a poem about Mary Lou Williams. And I looked at him and I said... Okay, <laughs> done. And then we kept walking, and I thought, man, I have got to find out who that is. I don't know who that is. So then this was serendipitous. Then we'll, we'll yeah. carry on. Sorry, Yona. So <laughs> it just turned out, you know. I started. That was when I first bought Zoning. It was a, it was re released through Smithsonian Folkways or the Smithsonian series on jazz. I got that CD. When I got back to D.C., I was still a student at that time, and I started to listen to her music, but I didn't really write very much about her at that time. It takes me a long time to process information. I just sort of enjoyed the music, and many, many years went by, Um, and then... I ended up in Pittsburgh, which is where Mary Lou Williams grew up, and I just started to learn more and more about her that way. And so it just started this whole other obsession. I started to read more about her, and I was mostly interested in what I see as her sort of spiritual pursuits. So, you know, she was interested in zodiac signs and she converted to Catholicism. She just kept seeking, 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 you know, spiritually. And I just really connected to that. And it was in the, you felt that in the
1: music itself too. The spirit was in the, was in the.
2: Yes. But also her discipline and tenacity, like her living through all of these eras of jazz music, you know, decade after decade, like really, really rolling with it. In a sense, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Well, let, let's um, maybe we'll take, when we come back from break, mm-hmm. maybe you'll read,
1: because you have a poem called Zodiac from mm-hmm. for, for Mary Lou Williams. And maybe maybe we could start there, Shona. Sure. Today on the program, Yona Harvey is here, hemming the water, um, out with four-way books. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass engineering. You're listening to Living Writers. And we'll be right back. like Morse cold, My soul start to grow colder than the North Pole. I try to focus on the hole of where the torch goes. In the tradition of these legendary sports pros, as far as I can see, i made it to the threshold. Lord knows i waited for this a lifetime, and I'm an icon when I let my light shine. Shine bright as an example of a champion, taking the advantage, never copping out or canceling. Burn like a chariot, learn how to carry it. Maverick, always above and beyond average. Fuel to the flame that I train with and travel with something in my eyes say I'm so close to having a prize I realize I'm supposed to reach for the skies never let somebody try to tell you otherwise back you've got living writers i'm t hetzel and today yona harvey is here we've got her first collection hemming the water on the table with us um and just before the break we were talking about mary lou williams um and and on your website yonaharvey.com you have that she's somewhat of a muse for you and she does surface in the book um quite a bit even like where you we can even you can tell i mean maybe she's there in in hidden ways that i'm not (laughs) privy to Mm -hmm. but you could tell us about them yona (laughs) sure
2: i think um i wanted to write about mary lou williams but not necessarily like poems about mary not mary lou williams biography in verse but really internalizing what i saw partially as her music making process composing process so you know i i said this I think before the break, that she moved through all these different periods in jazz. And so that meant like the sound of the music is changing, you know, over many years. And so I thought about that in terms of the way that I worked with forms and things like that. So Mary Lou Williams is sort of searching and seeking. That never changed, but the way that she went through it and the way that it sounded evolved over time. And so that kind of liberated me to work at my own pace through my manuscript over many, many years, and also to sort of invoke and use different kinds of forms or sounds or ways. And so I think that comes through most with communion with Mary Lou Williams. And
1: and even on um, the page itself, looking at uh, the architecture of the lines or mm-hmm. how the space is used and um, did that, so when you were saying that you felt liberated by her, was it even in within the space of one poem that has, like under one title Yes, th- that you would be doing
2: Yes, so, so I, I sort of see it as partially a conversation between the two of us. I mean, of course, by the time I've written this, she's passed away but you know when you're seeking or wanting that muse or that mother or that wisdom you can still like sort of imagine what that conversation might be and so that's how I like to think about the poem like a conversation between two women changes in that way too it's high it's really fast and it's slower it's you know and so I just felt free to do that you know, in this piece. So, and this is, this in this poem, this is kind of what's left after a lot of, like, attempts. Some poems I've written about her and they just didn't make it to the book or whatever, you know, because they, some of them weren't that great. (laughs) So, and that's okay. Or or they're still on their way. Yeah, right. Something. That's a much better way of thinking about that. (laughs) So, yeah. So some of them look a little, like, short, paragraphs, and some are just a couple lines, others are more lyrical, and I just let it flow like that. Could, would you read would you part of it? Yeah. Would... I'll read this part in the, kind of in the middle. Give me one good reason to fool with you, to roll them and roll them. These down-home notes, these parts of me, you hip cats, you wannabes, you running men and wandering women, you Jesus children. Imagine strolling New York streets with the stretch-marked sounds of bass and trill, the labor of music in a childless body, sacrifice to the service of... America's holy music and all the ancestors with their rattling of bones in the traffic and cursing their voices nudging calloused feet forward two blocks, two blocks more past all the people trying to get right to get right is to get with. Memphis and Mississippi. If you want to boogie with me, you got to get right with the giver of blues. So thanks
1: Yona. Thank you. And so for that part, can you tell us like in the conversation, is that, um, or maybe this is being too, um, trying to be too literal with it or so, but um, is that part when, Mary Lou is talking to you, like back to you from something within how you've constructed this conversation?
2: Yes, I definitely hear that as that voice is closer to her voice. Very assertive. Um, (laughs) One time my husband said when he heard her music early on for the first time, he said, wow, she plays like a man. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We could, yeah, we could deconstruct that a no. little bit but without going that way. Still, but I think what he was responding to was her, you know, confidence and assuredness, and that just sort of uncompromising kind of sound. You know what I mean? Well, and you can you can hear the way that you're entering the
1: sound within those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. and and the voice is up and down. It sounds like even within the same line.
2: Yeah. And she, I think at the time when I wrote this too, I was listening to a lot of Mary Lou Williams live at the Cookery, and so she's in New York and she's giving this concert. And uh, it's been a long time since I read these liner notes, but some students music you know young musicians as in like kids like middle school age or whatever i'm not sure exactly what their ages were but they had come to hear her and so there's this funny moment right before the concert starts where she's basically saying you know it's kind of great that these kids are here i'm glad to do this for you but you know you're going to be quiet, because I'm doing this recording. (laughs) So, you know, you need to, like, chill a little bit, because your voices are going to come through if you're not. And so there's just something really maternal and stern and funny about that you know right. like I'm glad to do this public service but sh- yeah I'm getting right, ready to play right. and I love that you know like I don't suffer fools I don't care how old you yeah are. and the kids got it though by the sounds of it because through the rest of the recording you probably didn't hear a peep or
1: anything no a little like rustling in the dishes chair. you oh, hear dishes. Okay.
2: forks and dishes moving around and I, I think that's kind of interesting too that this music is being Made and then there are these. In a room with other things happening, kitchen sounds. So oh, oh, kitchen sounds. To in me, particular. that's very symbolic for some reason. <laughs> yeah, like the music's going and life's going at the same time. So this very domestic sound of like forks and plates passing, and then this awesome concert happening at the same time. So, I mean, today they'd probably edit that out. There's no way you'd hear.
1: The but in something like that, something's
2: but. lost then. Mm-hmm. A
1: layer of meaning. Yeah. And so with your with your work, Yona, you're working in collage as part of your process. Mm-hmm. So and this sounds like that to me in a way, like okay. as you're talking about this musical composition.
2: Yeah. And I think I probably use that term a little more loosely than people think of, because I think for some people they might interpret that as, Oh, are all these lines from somewhere else? But they're really not. It's me just Thinking about things from other sources. So say, for example, in the same poem, Communion with Mary Lou Williams, there is a part, there is a a scrap of paper where Mary Lou Williams writes, I've learned to pray through my fingertips. And that really is something that she wrote down. But the rest, and that's just one little mm, section. Yes. And And the rest is me just sort of meditating on what that means you know again a woman who's making music and thinking about like playing the piano as her kind of offering or prayer and i just love that's beautiful that you know she's living she's making art and you know those things kind of have to happen those two things almost have to happen at once for her to live the way she lives you know (laughs) So, I don't know, so the poem comes out of that, and that's what I think of as some part of collaging. It's very loose for me, so it sounds like you're it's it's
1: about um the openness around the ideas or the pieces,
2: mm-hmm and also wanting very much for my muses or influences to be known and acknowledged recognized. Like I didn't just make this book by myself. I see like all these great women inside this book who've allowed me to make it. So that's important for me these connections, acknowledging mm-hmm. them because yeah. they are there.
1: Yeah. And I feel like other people with process, it, with poems, it is something like, I don't know, in the old days or even uh, now, you know, carry a little notebook around and there's little fragments mm-hmm. in it and at different times you're putting them together or finding a, new neighbors. Yes, it's <laughs> so, <that's>
2: true. Yeah, <laughs> Yes, very much. So, yeah. And then there's another piece that Is built from. Is it the Neruda poem? Right, and that is probably the most collaged piece because it's a cento. So that's a form where I'm, you know, you really do take the words from another. Could you tell form. us about the the form? Yeah, so in the cento you're it's I guess it's very much like a found poem. You're basically taking the language from another artist's piece and rearranging it to make your new poem. So in this case, I took the titles of Pablo Neruda's poems, or from the index, anyway, and then I arranged them in a way that made sense to me. And I also see that as a sort of conversation with some a poet I really love, you know. So, and in this case, these are all Neruda's lines, and that's really the only poem like that in this book. book. So. so,
1: but Neruda's an influence too. Yes, and so he he takes up some space Mm -hmm. on the page there for sure well let's take a short break and then would you mind well let's hear some more poems when we come back um today on living writers yona harvey is here her book hemming the water i'm t hetzel we'll take a short break and we'll be right back You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Yona Harvey is here. We've got her um, poem collection, Hemming the Water, here on the table before us. Uh, Yona's picked the songs. We just had Prince coming in for... Uh, it's, yeah, you can't argue with that. <laughs> it's always good to hear his voice. <laughs> Why are you laughing, Yona? I can't disagree with that. you yeah. right. <laughs> You, I feel like you picked a more mature song. I might have picked something terrible. Like I would have taken us back to Little Red Corvette. Oh. Versus- <laughs> that's like that's one that Prince probably doesn't even listen to that's anymore. Funny. <laughs> um, so Yona, let's t- let's talk. So we, you were telling us a little bit about Santos before the break, mm-hmm. and um. The maybe just a quick question about that. How did you decide when you were in the index like, <laughs> of Pablo Neruda's books? Like, what, why did you think like this might be the way to have a conversation with him? Was it something about the lines, or did you find yourself seeing them in new ways? Like, you weren't just reading down the spine
2: to right. look at. Is that what happened? Or I was actually. Thinking about the time when I first started read to read Neruda's work very carefully. So when I was, was that I was living in Japan, and it was a crazy time. It was that my first year of being married? I was teaching English in a middle school, and oh, middle school. And this is before. There, well, Amazon maybe was. It was before all that was even very big. So I had to. uh, Ed Ochester and um, his wife were selling books. So we would fill out the orders, and they would ship the books to us from the states to Japan. It would be so exciting to get these books. Anyway, Pablo Neruda. To keep myself busy, I would translate his work from Spanish to English just as an exercise and so I was just thinking about the translation process and imitation and all that kind of stuff and that is how I don't know it just seemed logical that he would be the person whose work was the product of this form later
1: and so, oh so later so Much it wasn't later. as okay because you did mention that this Hemming the Water is a book that has been in process for for a number of years mm-hmm. when would you say like one of the first like the or or did the poems also keep transforming sort of over the years yeah. as well
2: some poems were let go or left alone for a while and i guess it started maybe in Graduate school, my MFA, I, but I don't think any of those poems stayed. And that was at the <laughs> Ohio was a State, wasn't it? Yeah. So, <laughs> Ooh, but I just, you know, you just think about things. You get married. You become a parent. Parents, you know, twice. You know, things just keep happening, and so I never stopped thinking about Neruda or Mary Lou Williams, the people I was had in, had an interest in, but. You know, I just didn't always have time to write the poems. You know, but it sounds like they stayed with you as companions all that time. For sure, and the deepening
1: and sort of that.
2: Yeah, that sometimes all you can do is read. You know, and that I mean that's something too. I don't. That's not
1: anything I take lightly. But yeah. Well, it sounds like it, especially if you're in Japan waiting for your box of books to arrive. That felt like probably a (laughs) lifeline. Yes. But translating, that's something that you have a whole different relationship with the individual poem, as well as this imagined idea of the poet. Right.
2: It's just a way to stay close to poetry, the process of poetry making when you're in a space where you're not really hearing... Your native language very much, and you know Spanish. I studied in school, so I don't know. It was just kind of a sanity exercise and a artistic exercise, just a way to kind of stay grounded and connected to poetry, you know. Well, could we? What, let's hear another poem, Okay. Jonah. That would be lovely. Alrighty, I'll read um, the antelope as document and. It also shares its title with a kind of a library science. <laughs>
1: and you're essay. laughing because this is another one of your many hats. <laughs> yes, yes. So
2: Wait, well maybe let's we will talk about it after the poem. Okay. The <laughs> Deal. Okay, one. If I am the dove and you are the wind, together we have some business. Two, maybe I'm a little half chick, one of the lost ones on the way to Capital City, thinking along the journey, I'm whole and the king will be so pleased to see me. Three, erase the deities of ocean and sky. Four, if you want to be touched, say, touch me. If you want to be held, say, Hold me. Five. An antelope running wild on the plains of Africa should not be considered a document. Six. The girl's green t-shirt reads, Save Darfur. Such a message. How shall we classify? In the context of a day without rain? Or in the neighborhood the girl walks? In the borders of her country, strapped and declaring war. Seven Object or document. Star in sky? No. Photo of star? Yes. Animal in wild? No. Animal in zoo? Yes. Eight Coffin draped in flag? No photo of coffin draped in flag yes nine eventually wisdom arrives but men spill their milk in the meantime ten who will offer his tongue Ah, uh-huh. i love that one yona thanks for reading thank you I, I'm going to sound like such a big nerd, but... <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Let's go there. <laughs> so this, I'll just, the short version is there was a French librarian, Suzanne Brier, and she had this whole manifesto that she wrote where essentially she's asking the question, what is a document? So for anybody out there who studied library science. It's kind of this manifesto that we all read and talk about at length. But essentially, I'm going to look it up. Okay, okay. it's really fascinating.
1: I'm going to be looking that up. fascinating.
2: I mean, your mind will go on a long, winding journey around this manifesto. But just to break it down, I'm really grossly oversimplifying. So sorry, librarians. But it just got me thinking about what we can prove, you know, or what maybe the dominant or colonial powers sometimes say we can prove, what's real, what's not real. So, you know, for example, there was a period where no images of the coffins coming home from the war in Iraq could be... In the U.S. newspapers. Yes. And so, but does that that, that mean that they weren't coming? We all knew that wasn't so. So this librarian has examples like that, too. So when she's trying to define what a document is, she's asking, you know, if an antelope runs in the wild and no one sees it, did that happen? Can you prove that? Is that a document? Not really. But if someone captures that antelope in a photograph, the photograph of the antelope is a document. And the same thing, an animal just in the wild by itself any evidence versus an animal in the zoo. Yes. That's kind of a document. It's in this fixed place and we can see it. So anyway, which is a different way of thinking of documents. Yeah. Because they become more three dimensional dimensional. (laughs) Yes, and it's living. Exactly. It's not just paper. Right. Right. So yeah. Anyway, it's just very interesting to think about. (laughs) So, so when did that
1: happen? That, that, Pursuit of yours after the MFA at the Ohio University and then (laughs)
2: later. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I have a very bad habit of doing hundreds of things at once. But I felt library science really suited my personality in that way because when you go and you study library science, you suddenly meet these like-minded people who know all of these seemingly useless random facts, and we can't seem to ever decide on one topic. And so in that sense, the library is very good to us. (laughs) For poets. Yeah, or, I don't know, anybody. I guess you don't have to be a poet necessarily, but was good for me. (laughs) And what what happened, Yona? How long? It was just a year's, a one-year intensive program at the University of Pittsburgh. And I don't know. I I think it really helped me to finish my book, to tell you the truth. It was like that's when the home stretch of hemming the water. I could see the finish line after I finished. How so? Because suddenly... I felt, for the first time, more secure about my process and interests and that I didn't have to just settle on one kind of voice or fir- uh, form. I was in this space that actually thrived on lots of different kinds of information and lots of ways of solving a problem. So. I thought, yes. And uniting them within, the, like, a space. Right. There's enough space for all these. Right, right. So a lot of times librarians will talk about triangulating. So a patron comes in and asks a question about, like, the origins of some flower. So, But you can't just settle on one source to help the patron. You know, maybe you find a book on this specific flower and then maybe there's a website and maybe there's another expert so you're just relying on at least maybe three sources of information to help this patron find what she needs to know and I thought wow Eureka that's how I like to think about my quests in poetry it's never just one dimensional and you're seeking
1: yeah. to take it back to Mary Lou Williams yeah, a little yeah. bit your very subject. much yeah and it's because there's you need these um or what you believe to be maybe the the truest vision of it is like the different angles of it so yes. it's not
2: just the one right what do you think is your so is this book a document <laughs> that no one's ever asked me that that's great yeah sure i think so it's a document of my seeking, my process. Yeah, I think so. That sounds right for now. <laughs> well, let's take a short break. Okay. Uh, we'll come back today. Yona Harvey
1: is here. Her book, Hemming the Water. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Yona Harvey is here. Her book, Hemming the Water, um, out with four-way books. And a quick thanks to Martha for sending the book. And, uh, and is, <laughs> is Martha
2: the editor she's you worked a great editor. most closely with, Yona? Or? Um, what In the production stage, I guess. But my editor, editor, as in line to line and... All that is was Sally Ball, the marvelous, wonderful Sally Ball. <laughs> she's great. First of all, she's an amazing poet, too. So we just connected right off the bat. She's amazing. And she's at Four Way Books. She- she's one of the editors. She's published on a different press, but yes, she's my four-way editor. So great poet. How And how did you and Four Way Books Meet. Um, This is such a funny and completely unusual story in poetry. So there was a poem. Actually, it's the poem that's the first poem in the book that was published in this journal called Rattle. That's out on the West Coast. And Sally saw this poem in Rattle. Sound? Yeah, Sound Part One Girl with Red Scarf. And she emailed me to say I love that poem I I don't know who you are do you have a manuscript and that is what started the whole put set the whole thing that is a great in motion story. it's a very good story I and feel like that's
1: what really should be like not should be I don't mean to make it a should thing now but that just feels like a a genuine way of someone finding a poem and finding a poet
2: yeah and I had always sort of romantically wished to have an editor and the kind of relationship that I actually have with Sally Mm. but I had given up on that because everyone I talked to with Experience and with books was saying they don't really have editors like that in poetry. you know there's no money, and no one works that way, so I feel very, very lucky to have met her well and I'm sure if, well, thank goodness for four way
1: books mm-hmm. but i they they must they're so glad and happy that they're the ones. They got to publish your book.
2: Yeah, they've been I'm sure. so supportive. It is a great press. I'm very happy to be in the four-way lineup. So, uh-huh. yeah. Well, more poems. More poem. Shall we have
1: another poem. What do
2: you think, Yona? Yes. Is- I'll That's read weird. something a little sillier and shorter. <laughs> Discovering girdles. I don't know what to do with this contraption of polyester and cotton, troublesome lace, black, white, another woman's nude, whatever the color. Its trick is to hide flesh, to constrict the skin like a bit of truth, a secret buried in the garden of women's undergarments. A prepubescent girl... Signals her mother to quiet, to lower what must be her first bra, and yes, it's fine, and can she go now? My mother's concerns for me were body odor and virginity, how to smell like a flower without being plucked. Robust women filled her church, their stomachs suffusing the linen of long dresses doused with perfume. I do not know how to behave publicly, contemplating these hip huggers that wouldn't matter to those women reaching beyond the fitting rooms of earth. Thank you. That's a great last line.
1: Oh. I'm picturing the women <laughs> I'm reaching beyond, and very
2: and get large girth, girthy. Or <laughs> yeah, I think I don't. Do they even make girdles now? I always set this up now and say, like, I think it would be discovering Spanx in this day, like <laughs> for you know, maybe that's the younger the people. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Spanx
1: still seem kinder in some way because at least it's like like a strange like body like a superhero bodysuit or so whereas the other thing was sort of even had clasps yeah. and pointed edges and very w- possibly whalebone
2: i mean who knows right right, <laughs> right. yikes right. yeah go figure girdles
1: girdles <laughs> <laughs> well what well when you're writing well you're also, let's see, one of your many hats, assistant professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. So, and you talked about having this fellowship Yona that um made you think about putting the the writing the work in First, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, maybe I have a problem with it. I have a hard time saying it. Mm-hmm. So, what? How do you? What is your like? what is your week to week look like? Like, how do you? Or is it more like in a year where you think these are the times where I can be writing more right. poems? Or is it a daily? Mm-hmm. Like, what does
2: process look like to you right now? Process. I always log. <laughs> this is great, this is interesting. Uh, there's a website called 750words.com. and it's based in on the west coast. I think Seattle is correct. I think I got that right. And um, so you the idea is to log 750 words every day. So that's kind of just like the daily ritual. That and you I, do that. I do. My friend uh, Sherry Flick, who's a fiction writer in Pittsburgh, is the person who told me about this website. And now I obsessively use this website. Do other people, are they able to read your 750 words or it no. something for you? Right. It They're all, it's closed. No one else can see it. The only thing that the public can see is that so-and-so just logged her words at 6... 45 a.m. or whatever, and you get little merit badges. You do? (laughs) If you write five days in a row, 10 days in a row, 30 days in a row, 100 days in a row, 200, 365, you know? So it's, so that's the just daily thing. So I feel comforted, like, okay, at least I went in and Free wrote or got some things off my chest and then as far as like focusing in on Specific poetry projects or poems that tends to be more seasonal. So, you know, definitely in the summertime. I try to get away For at least two or three weeks of uninterrupted Time so now that my kids are older I'm able to do that and does that mean literally leaving
1: where your home base is yes
2: yeah because it's very hard even if I'm not teaching or I'm on winter break it's still not quite the same as having writing time to yourself and this is I'm talking about this it's very very new like only over the past three years have I been able to go away and write. before that I didn't feel comfortable doing that my kids were younger so
1: yeah and then maybe you have your when you're away are you generating more material yes and when you return then that can be a different type of headspace working within it yes or? See,
2: I can revise you know during the year in that way but when I'm trying to create newer things longer pieces or what have you it's much easier you know if I'm away
1: Especially with teaching, I think too, having that being a component. Yes. Of the. For sure. It has to. Mm
2: hmm. Mm
1: hmm. Well, what are we going to talk about next, Yona? <laughs> should we have another poem? What do you we think?
2: I think another poem. I would, would love be that. Good. That would be
1: great. <laughs> and then, we'll, then we'll see where it takes us, okay. this poem. Alrighty. Deal. I'll read. And why did you? While you're looking, why did you pick Ruth Stone to pair with Mary Lou Williams?
2: Same thing. Like a woman who lived such a long time, but who also struggled. You know, this was. Uh, she didn't have a steady university job or cushiony. Life or anything like that, and yet she was so resilient and persistent. And there's just something that's really meaningful, you know, inspiring about that. It keeps me from whining, too, when I think about, oh, wait a minute, Lucille Clifton, Toni Morrison, Ruth Stone, Mary Lou Williams, like women overcoming great odds, women, uh, with the exception of Mary Lou, Who have children and who are still just producing their work and focused and, you know, you know Publishing later in life. I really need I need them. So it comes out of that Uh, Hurricane and My daughter was born in New Orleans And there's also a little ride called the hurricane that comes to the carnival every spring in Pittsburgh and so great thing about the imagination you can be in two places at once almost in the headspace of a poem so hurricane four tickets left I let her go first born into a hurricane I thought she escaped the flood waters. No, but her head is empty of the drowned for now, though she took her first breath below sea level. Ah, ah, and ah, Mama let me go she speaks what every smart child knows to get grown you unlatch your hands from the groan and up and up and Turns, latched in the seat of a hurricane. You let your girl what? You let your girl what? I did so she do. I did so she do. So, girl, you can ride. A hurricane and she do, and she do, and she do, and she do, she do make my river an ocean memorial, Baptist, Protestant birth. My girl walked away from a hurricane, and she do, and she do, and she do, and she do, she do take my hand a while longer. The haunts in my pocket I'll keep to a hum. Katrina was a woman I knew when you were an infant. She rained on you, and she do and she do and she do and she do thank you
1: yona thank Thanks. you that's that's a poem that sings <laughs> a
2: poet that sings i just love i don't know i like i like reading that poem a lot my daughter she is really a force too she's 14 now you know ki- people talk about kids being so cute and sweet and they are but they're also really terrifying creatures <laughs> no one talks about that before you have them so it's like who is this person i'm in charge of i think sort I'm in of charge. Of, yeah not really she's already formed she's who she is i'm just kind of guiding her along trying to keep her alive (laughs) (laughs) and you do and you do
1: (sighs) Yona thanks so much for being on the program today thank you thanks
2: for having me I loved every minute come back anytime thank you
0: Welcome back to the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Charlie Brigham. Alongside me, got two panelists today. Got Matt Levy and Connor Irgood. How are you guys doing today? Awesome. Pretty solid. Uh red wings aren't looking too hot right now, but you know. We can can get into a little bit of hockey later. Obviously, still pre-recording these DSRs the night before, so currently recording at around 8.30 on November 2nd. But that means that we are right in the mix of things. Just an hour ago, the new college football playoff rankings dropped. um, And there are some some surprises. Um, I guess I'll go through real quick and read off. Uh, really, the top four, because those are the only ones who matter, and then those who are kind of on the bubble. So right now, it's Georgia at one, Alabama at two, Michigan State at three, Oregon at four, Ohio State five, Cincinnati six, Michigan seven, Oklahoma eight, Wake Forest nine, Notre Dame 10, and then after that, it doesn't really matter. So I just want to hear your guys' first initial thoughts, um, just kind of looking at that list. Yeah, I can start it off. I think it's definitely Michigan over Oklahoma right now, which is a little surprising to me. Uh, the, the reasons why I just looked up were just because of the metrics that Michigan has just played a tougher schedule and they got uh, in a pretty close game against a top 10 team on the road, while Oklahoma State hasn't beaten a top 25 team and has played every team cl- close. I expect that the changes, the rankings go on and Oklahoma played Oklahoma State, they'll get some wins in there. And if they're a conference champion, I don't expect them to not get in per se. And it's going to come down. And I think the other thing that's interesting too is that Michigan State is above Ohio State and then Oregon is sandwiched in between. So this Big Ten race between Ohio State